welcome to the first episode of our brand new podcast, Scary But True Campfire Stories, brought to you by Dudes Camping, hosted and narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Thanks for listening, and please spread the word, tell your friends, tell your enemies, post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and any other social media outlet that joins the two in a harmonious hodgepodge of political debate. Our goal is to share true stories of the strange, supernatural, ghostly, and unexplained as we gather around the virtual campfire. Or maybe you are sitting around a real campfire right now. Maybe you have a strange but true story that you'd like to share. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your own Bigfoot, UFO, ghost, or unexplained supernatural story, and we'll consider it for broadcast. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube and Facebook at Dudes Camping. Our first tale is a true story that happened to myself and Brad Oliger back in the mid-90s in Northwest Ohio. So sit back, relax, grab some s'mores and a cozy sleeping bag, and enjoy the house on Girdham Road. High school was a strange time for me. It was a strange time for everyone, I think. But for me... It was the culmination of strangeness and supernatural occurrences that never seemed to happen when I was looking for them, except the house on Girdham Road. There wasn't much to do on the weekend in northwest Ohio if you didn't drink or party. We spent most of the nights terrorizing the drunks, antagonizing the meatheads, or looking for some secret place to explore and scare ourselves into believing we had a supernatural experience. There was one such road on the outskirts of Toledo's largest state park, a three-mile road that had no streetlights, stop signs, and hardly any houses. It was enclosed on either side with thick bushes and oak trees that continued into the dark and scary unknown. There was hardly anything on this road and no reason for anyone to be driving on it, especially 12.30 at night. Someone had told us about the road, that they had a creepy supernatural experience one night. A strange light hovered on the back corner of their car as they drove down the road, scared them out of their minds so naturally we were drawn to it, pleading for our own creepy experience. We would drive out to the road at night, shut our car lights off, and be surrounded by complete eerie darkness. No matter how long we allowed our eyes to adjust to it, they never did. At one point, we discovered a small plot with three gravestones on it. There was an eerie fog, so we dared each other to get out and walk on the graves. But somehow we knew in the back of our minds that if we did, the others would take off and leave us stranded in pitch darkness with the possibility of a zombie outbreak. Spooky. One night, my friend Brad and I decided to go out to Girdham Road and park the car on the side take flashlights and explore on foot. As two bored teenagers, it was the bravest and scariest thing we could think to do on a dark Friday night. We found a nice isolated spot to park his car by a rocky path, grabbed our flashlights, and began to walk towards the dark, scary woods beyond. As we walked in the direction of the impeding darkness, we saw a looming black structure in the distance. There shouldn't be anything out here, I thought. As we got closer, the structure started to take the gloomy shape of an abandoned house. 
We approached from the side and walked around to the front. It was abandoned, all right. A dilapidated, three-story house with broken windows, a torn and hanging awning, siding peeling off the structure, and a paint job from a hundred years ago. From the front, it resembled every haunted house in every scary movie we ever saw, from Amityville Horror to Beetlejuice. We had hit the jackpot of ghost hunting before ghost hunting was actually a thing. Brad looked at me and smiled. Bingo, let's go. With my Methodist upbringing, I said a quick prayer of protection and hesitantly followed through the open front door, which was hanging off the hinges. We walked into the most destroyed and rotten-looking house I had ever seen. Half the front room we were standing in had collapsed, leaving a gaping hole into what looked like the basement. I realized that this was going to be quite a dangerous expedition. Brad was excited, and I was very nervous about the state of the structure, and also an ominous feeling of being watched. We circled around the gaping hole and made our way into the kitchen area. Every step I took felt like the floorboards would give way and I would plunge into some bottomless pit of hell below. The house was pretty barren except for a few cabinets on the wall and a rotten wood china cabinet leaning with one side broken through the floor. We turned the corner and saw what used to be a staircase leading up to the second floor. It followed the wall and went right above the hole of darkness. I did not like this at all. Brad said, let's go. I was against this idea because we had to pick our steps very carefully. You could see right through the stairs and each wooden beam was a potential pitfall waiting to break and send us into Sheol below. I thought that if we heard a voice or an apparition appeared or something grabbed me in the darkness, I wouldn't be able to turn and run. I would simply fall and break my leg. You go up and see if there's anything worth exploring. I said to Brad as I stopped, steadied myself against the wall, and prayed for divine protection. He looked at me with male goading and said, Come on, let's go. No, go up and see if there's anything worth exploring first. I'm worried about these steps. He sighed and continued slowly up the steps in Peter Vankman fashion. I looked around the vacant house for any movement or ghostly apparitions. I still had this awful sense of being watched by something unfriendly, something standing so close to me that I could feel its breath. I swung the light around and saw nothing. The shadows kept moving and I wasn't doing anything to make them move. That creeped me out. Finally, Brad came back down the stairs. There's a big pile of debris right at the top. I can't get past it. Let's explore the basement. Uh, I don't think so, I thought to myself. I am not going into the pit of Hades just for fun. At this point, I had had enough of the creepy house and was ready to get the heck out. I finally convinced Brad that we should come back with some gear so we're prepared for anything, ropes, boots, and maybe a video camera for some supernatural videography. He agreed, and we slowly made our way out of the house. I breathed a sigh of relief as we exited the dilapidated house from hell. Walking back to the car, I kept looking behind me, imagining a black-robed witch bursting out of the door and chasing us while screeching obscenities and curses. We got back to the car and made our way home. 
Mission accomplished. We would return the next week. Next week rolled around and we had psyched ourselves up into returning for a more thorough exploration of the Girdham Road house. We had boots, rope, pocket knives, clubs for protection, and anything else we thought would protect us from a supernatural encounter. As we drove down the vacant, seemingly abandoned road, we parked in the exact same spot as before, using a small rocky path as our landmark. We gathered our gear and donned our flashlights as we began the trek back towards the dilapidated house on Girdham Road. We walked for quite a distance when I turned and realized we had walked too far. We were on the outskirts of the thick woods and there was nothing beyond. We turned and walked back, thinking we must have walked in the wrong direction. Swinging the flashlights back and forth, we saw no sign of the house. We spent the next hour and a half conducting our own ground search in a grid of the area we were completely certain the house was located. We found absolutely nothing, not even a trace of where the house had been. We were both confounded and baffled. We drove up and down the road for 20 minutes trying to see if we parked in the wrong spot, but there was only one rocky path on the whole three-mile stretch that could have led to our mysterious house. It had completely disappeared. We went home disappointed, but somewhat satisfied that just a week before, we had explored an abandoned house, and now it just vanished into thin air. One month later, we returned in the daytime to hunt down our house. We came across a mound that looked like a house had once stood upon its grounds, but it was all grown over and could not have been removed so quickly. Brad and I returned several times afterwards, but we never found the house again. Had we stepped into a vortex, another dimension? Maybe the house existed in another time. Maybe we had a hallucination. Or maybe the house on Girdham Road was a place that should have never existed. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button so you never miss one of our podcasts. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your own stories or just to give us your feedback. Our next story comes to us from Wayne in Nashville, Tennessee. A strange but true haunting from the famous Bell Witch in Adams, Tennessee. Seeing is believing and a skeptic becomes a believer. When I was a much younger man, I had ambitions of working in the medical field. After serving in the Marines for six years, two years active duty, I landed a job at a plasma center at one of the most prestigious universities in Middle Tennessee, Vanderbilt University. People would come into the center to donate plasma for a little bit of cash, mostly the broke college students. It was all based on weight. The more you weighed, the more plasma you could donate, and the more money you would make. At the college, I would see 275-pound kids come in to try and make their beer money giving source plasma and spend the weekend trying to drink it back into their systems. I wasn't going to be the one to tell them that's not how it worked. Donating plasma is similar to donating blood, except the plasma is separated from red blood cells and then stored for use in trauma, burn, and shock patients, as well as clotting factor deficiencies. 
It helps to boost the blood volume and helps with blood clotting. If a person donated plasma, they would have to wait two days before they could donate again, and they could only donate twice a week. Needless to say, I got to meet some of the most interesting people at my job. But one particular weekend, I met a group of freshmen at the university who had just moved into the dorms and were not familiar with the area. Hey, man, how long have you lived in Nashville? One scraggly-haired guy asked me. All my life, I replied. Why? Because we're looking for something to do that is off campus. We're bored of trying to get into parties we're not allowed. Do you have any ideas? I was always good at giving suggestions to tourists for things to see and places to go, but these kids seemed like they wanted something out of the ordinary. The typical Nashville landmarks didn't seem like it would pique their interest. I grew up hearing the tales about the Bell Witch and thought maybe that would be something these kids might be interested in. There's always the Bell Witch Cave in Adams, Tennessee, I said, as they turned and looked attentive. Where's that? The scraggly-haired kid asked. It's about an hour from Nashville. You guys have never heard of the Bell Witch? I asked them. No! They resounded in unison. They seemed very intent on wanting me to tell them the legend, all except for one guy. He almost rolled his eyes at the mention of the word witch. I proceeded anyway. There was a family around the year 1817, the Bell family, that had this witch haunting and terrorizing them and eventually led to the death of the father. It started out as an apparition appearing in the form of a giant bird. Then the father shot a strange dog on their property which disappeared. One of the servants was too afraid to visit his wife because he said he was followed by a large black dog. The youngest daughter, Betsy, saw a girl in a green dress swinging from the branch of a tree. And then things started happening in their house. They would hear strange sounds like gnawing on the beds, invisible dogs fighting, and chains being dragged across the floor. I heard the skeptical kid give a sigh of disbelief. I turned and looked at him. You don't believe me, do you? I asked him politely. No, man, I don't believe any of that stuff. Witches, ghosts, supernatural hocus-pocus, it's all made up, man. The other five guys brushed him off as a killjoy and told me to keep going. I continued the story as I finished getting plasma from one kid and moved on to another. The owner of the house, John Bell, would occasionally be talking, and his mouth would just become paralyzed. Then things started to get real creepy. The children would be sleeping, and an entity would just pull the sheets right off the bed while they slept. It would scratch them and pull their hair, and seem to focus on the youngest girl, Betsy. She would be playing, and something would just slap her and pinch her. Nobody believed them until John Bell had his friend come over one night, and the same creepy things happened to him. Then word got out. People came to the house to try and cleanse it, but no luck, so they decided to communicate with it instead. That's when things get really weird. Weirder than this bullcrap story? The skeptical kid blurted out, as if I was wasting his time. Shut up, Henry! The others elbowed him. They seemed intrigued, so I continued the spirit started talking to them. They would hear just a voice, and it would answer questions, questions that nobody could possibly know the answer to, 
about personal stuff. They called it the Bell Witch because it never told them its name. It began to threaten John Bell with curses and afflictions. Eventually, he died mysteriously from some sort of poison. I could see the excitement rising up in their eyes. They were somehow able to get the witch to leave, and it went to the cave on the outskirts of the property where supposedly it still lives. Dude, we gotta go. They all jumped up and said, excited at the thought of wandering into the unknown. To them, it must have seemed like going to a $10 haunted house where it's fun to be scared, knowing you won't get hurt. Little did they realize, and little did I know, that this was more like playing with a deadly snake. I didn't know if I really believed the stories, but they were local legends, and I figured they were legends for a reason. I never had any desire to go visit the cave or to go searching for a supernatural experience, and I could tell Henry the Skeptic didn't either. The cave was once open as a tourist spot, but several years ago it was inexplicably shut down and condemned. I gave the directions to the scraggly-haired kid and watched them as they all laughed and said, This is going to be so much fun. All except for Henry. He acted like he was being forced to mow the lawn. I told them good luck as they got their money and headed off for the adventure that awaited them. I had forgotten all about them as I continued working at the center and then three days later the kids came back in to donate plasma again. Excellent, I thought. I wonder how it went. The first thing I noticed was that they were not smiling. They seemed sullen and concerned. I immediately asked them, Hey guys, what happened? How did it go? Well, one kid said, We gotta show you something. Okay, I said, as I led all six of them into the room, closed the door, and prepped the sterile instruments on the table. So what happened? I asked. You wanna tell him, Henry? The scraggly-haired kid said, looking serious. Yeah, he started. We drove out to the cave where you said. We got lost at first, but finally found it. It was kind of hidden. Yeah, it's not easy to find. Tell us about it. Anyway, we only had one flashlight, so we went to the entrance of the cave and started walking in a single file. I was last in line, so I couldn't really see very well, because Mark had the flashlight in the front. He motioned with his head at the scraggly-haired kid. Danny here was cracking jokes about the witch and saying he was going to make her eat her own poison or something. I think Mark said something about taking off her dress when I felt somebody grab me by the shoulder. I turned around and there was nobody there. But I still felt this grip on my shoulder. He looked baffled and confused as he spoke. This freaked me out, so I started running towards Mark at the front pushing the others out of the way when I felt this thing release its grip. What the heck? I thought. Then I felt intense pain as something scratched on my back. I grabbed the flashlight from Mark and swung it around. There was nothing there. I said, let's get the heck out of here now. Everyone asked, why? What is it? And I just screamed. Something just scratched my back. And we all took off running toward the entrance. Something scratched you? I asked. Did it leave a mark? He drew a look from the others and slowly lifted up his shirt. I watched the faces of these young college kids who just three days earlier were laughing and joking over the excitement of visiting the Bellwitch Cave. Now, 
deadpan and concerned. Henry turned around, and I saw three scratch marks starting at his shoulder blades and running down his lower back. They had turned into half-inch welts that looked like third-degree burns or that he'd been recently branded. I was astounded. These are from the cave? I asked. He quickly pulled his shirt down and spun around to look at me. These are from whatever was in the cave, he said. I was bleeding for two days, and it finally stopped yesterday. Whatever was in there, it attacked me, and I am never going back in there again. He seemed a little traumatized, which made me feel guilty for suggesting it in the first place. Whatever had assaulted this young man, who was a complete skeptic before, it left an indelible impression not only on his back, but on his entire worldview. He was now a complete believer, as was I. Unless they were playing a cruel prank on me, I saw with my own eyes the consequence of messing around with evil. The Apostle Paul said in the letter to the Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I got to see it firsthand, and I hope that I never have to deal with it face to face like that young man did. Needless to say, I went home that night and contemplated what I saw over dinner. Instead of watching the television while I ate, I turned it off and prayed that evening. I prayed for a long time. Thanks for listening to Scary But True Campfire Stories presented by Dudes Camping. Narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. You can purchase audiobooks from Matthew S. Newbold on Audible and iTunes. Visit Matthew Newbold Music on Facebook or Dudes Camping on YouTube and Facebook. Special thanks to Wayne Burdett for the story. Any character's likeness is pure coincidence, unless you are Brad Oliger. Then you are SOL, because I used you in the story, because it's true. Until next time, we will see you around the campfire.